Welcome to what is the final episode of the second series of our podcast, The Agora. I'm Nick Malkoutsis. And I'm Phoebe Fronista. You know, Nick, it feels like we've been on a huge journey during the second season, even though it only began about six months ago. I know. I was looking back on some of the subject matter we've covered the implications of Joe Biden's presidency for Greece, for instance. Remember that guy? <laughs> uh, the historic conviction of uh, Greek neo-Nazis, the potential impact of Brexit on Greece's ties with the UK, and the emergence of a Me Too movement right here in Greece. And let's not forget the bicentennial celebrations. Well, not quite celebrations, but it was such an important anniversary for the country to mark. It seems incredible that somehow that's all been crammed into the last few months. Um, anyway, it's all happened, of course, against a consistent backdrop, an issue which we've covered from various angles, but which in this episode we'll be addressing head on. Of course, we're talking about the coronavirus. Sadly, it's the one constant in all of our lives over the last year or so. As we speak, Almost 10,000 people have died after contracting the virus in Greece. And currently, more than 800 are intubated in hospitals around the country. In more positive developments, around 2 million people have received at least one dose of the vaccine. That's more than 18% of the population. On a number of occasions since this podcast began, we've examined what kind of impact COVID has had on tourism, exports, fiscal policy, and other areas of the economy. But it's more than a year since the virus first surfaced in Greece, so we thought we'd take a step back and look at how the country has coped with the pandemic, which has changed our lives in so many ways. On the show today, we'll look back at the last year and ask, what's life been like on the front line in the fight against the pandemic? Later in the podcast, we'll hear from a doctor who's been working around the clock treating COVID patients in the ICUs of Athens during, as she told me, one of her toughest weeks on the job. With the help of two colleagues from Macropolis, we'll also analyse the policies adopted by the government, how effective they've been, and where Greece finds itself today in the effort to rein in and eradicate COVID-19. But first... We'll start with a look back at the last year with a local reporter who covers the health beat for the Greek newspaper Eleftheros Tipos. Maria Niki Yorganda has reported from COVID hospitals in Athens, followed the daily briefings by the health authorities, 
and tracked the hundreds of decisions that ministers and public officials have taken in their effort to combat the virus. I caught up with her a few days ago, outside, as always, to discuss the hectic and harrowing year we've been through. like covering those first few weeks? Uh, when shortly after the arrival of 2020, the virus started approaching Greece, uh, and especially when it arrived in Italy, I began to understand that there, oops, we have a problem. <laughs> it, wa- it was only a matter of time before the virus entered Greece. We all knew it, and uh, we were waiting for it. Uh, what we did not know uh, was uh, what followed. Uh, We didn't know, nor did uh, the scientists, uh, the severity of the pandemic and its effect on health. Uh, I remember in the first briefing that took place in the Ministry of Health, um, on February 26, it was uh, Wednesday, I will not forget it, Uh, the Professor Sotiris Tsiodras told us that what we know is that is a simple flu. Uh, the scientific community itself did not even know what it had to do with. I will never forget also the fear and the anxiety of the doctors I met in a report at Soteria Hospital, as well as the staff uh, in the ICU of the same hospital. They were so careful with every move of me uh, for fear of getting infected. I felt and I still feel uh, that these people have actually lost their sleep for more than a year, not only because of working hours, but uh, especially because of anxiety and the fear uh, of death and um, of treating uh, their patients. Can you describe the situation in Greece's public hospitals and, and what are the doctors and nurses saying? Hospitals today are in the worst phase. Uh, despite the prolonged lockdown, uh, the, ta- the daily case numbers uh, do not fall, uh, and as a result, hospitals are always full. Uh, the doctors and the rest of the staff uh, are fighting a huge uh, daily battle. Uh, they try not to leave intubated outside the ICUs, although this is not always possible. Um, uh, why, while in the first wave we were a good example and now we are in this urgent situation, according to the doctors, the citizens are very tired and they are not holding the measures of social distancing. In addition, in the third epidemic wave, uh, we have the variants of the virus uh, which have greatly burdened hospitals. Mm. Uh, young people are hospitalized and uh, their health is serious with ha- without having um, underlying health conditions. Uh, also, hospitalization uh, due to mutations lasts longer. Ah. All these factors has brought the national health system to its limit. Uh, moreover, um, I would like to say that uh, doctors and nurses have to treat whole families uh, in the hospitals. Uh, domestic transmission is large. Yeah, so community spread, it's families, it's whole families that are being... Yes. So, the Greek government received a lot of praise for how it handled the first wave at the beginning of the pandemic a year ago. 
What are the main things the Greek authorities got right over the last year? And what do you think have been the biggest mistakes or weaknesses? Okay. Um, in the first wave, the decision for universal lockdown was made very early. Uh, before the virus even spreads in the community. Uh, as a result, cases were reduced to almost zero. Um, I recall that last May, before the economy and society began to open, there were days with only two cases per day. Uh, the summer may have given us the false impression uh, that we had left behind the adventure of the pandemic. Uh, the obligation of masks everywhere I think could have been applied earlier, as well as the continuation of the daily information of the citizens. Uh, at the same time, uh, in the second wave that started to flare up from the beginning of the autumn, uh, no immediate decisions were taken for a total stop of activities. The example of Thessaloniki is typical. Uh, there are many experts who claim that a lockdown a week or two earlier in Thessaloniki uh, would have prevented the incredible images in hospitals and the huge number of deaths uh, recorded in northern Greece at that time. Uh, I believe that the vaccines sector, uh, on the contrast, is one of the positives of the authorities' management. Uh, Greeks have understood the value of vaccination, at least most of them. And any insecurities expressed, for example, regarding the AstraZeneca vaccine, are part of uh, what is observed worldwide. When I drive around Athens, there is a lot more traffic than there was during the first lockdown, even though theoretically we're not supposed to move outside our municipality. And I also see far fewer police enforcing restrictions. What's going on with that? Are, are Greece just fed up with the latest lockdown? And is that the reason that cases just refuse to fall? Uh, I think that mobility of any kind uh, leads to larger transmissions and more transmissions. I certainly believe that non-compliance with the measures keeps the daily cases at a high level. Uh, you don't see a difference in the streets and uh, in the mobility of everyone. People go to work normally, companies don't apply teleworking, uh, or at least as they did in the first time. Uh, infectious disease specialists emphasize that many outbreaks are created in the workplace. Uh, of course, people are tired. We are all tired and it makes sense. Um, all this uh, fatigue... Uh, makes impossible for the case to be fallen, I think. Vaccinations in Greece are seemingly going well, but only just over half of Greeks over the age of 80 have gotten the vaccine. How worried should we be about vaccine hesitancy and further spread? Actually, vaccination rates could be better. Uh, the most typical example is that of health professionals, uh, especially the nurses are vaccinated in 50%, percent, uh, oh. while, yes, that's uh, <laughs> worse. <laughs> wow, that's, yeah, that's very low. Yes, uh, while they are at the source of the coronavirus, uh, vaccination uh, hesitation is a very serious issue. I know many, many people for whom the automated vaccine system arranged an appointment with the AstraZeneca vaccine and they rushed to change it. But why do you think that, why are nurses so low? Like, do, do, do we know? I don't know why. Uh, it's, a, it's a very bad statistic. Uh, 
it's the same uh, in the flu vac- in the flu vaccine ah. uh, yes every year uh, it's um, a big uh, um, battle for the professionals of health to be vaccinated huh. uh, in many uh, institutions that uh, carry on uh, elderly people it's uh, the same uh, situation yeah. to sum up as people are really itching to leave their homes and travel and the government seems determined to open up for tourists uh, even as we are still in the situation what are your biggest concerns uh, about the next few months here in Greece it's a hard question I think the liberalization uh, of activities and the opening of tourism will certainly break transmissions especially since the entire Greek population has not been vaccinated The issues and challenges for uh, the coming months are many. Uh, vaccine flow is one of them. Uh, whether citizens will be vaccinated is another one. Uh, I believe that the sense of security provided by vaccines uh, will lead to poor compliance. Uh, in addition, people are so tired, um, so in the summer, and if everything is open, they will behave as if nothing is happening. Uh, all this is likely to bring us another wave of the pandemic, which I hope will be lighter because of the vaccinations. Uh, another, another concern uh, which I can think is a possible new variant that knocks out vaccines. So we have um, months, <laughs> uh, months to look ahead and uh, wait. And worry. <laughs> and worry about And one last thing, because a lot of our listeners are abroad and they didn't get to come to, to Greece last summer. Do you think that they should come? I think that uh, they should come uh, and be very careful uh, for the measures of social distancing. So everyone uh, will <laughs> be fine and, and safe. And safe. Great. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for the invitation. <laughs> That was health correspondent Maria Niki Yurada speaking to Phoebe. As in so many places around the world, it's been a really tough year or so, but the Greek government insists that better days are just around the corner, although some people remain skeptical. A few days ago, Prime Minister Kyriakos Mitsotakis held a televised address to announce that as of next month, May, some social and economic activity would resume after a lockdown that's lasted about six months. Και πιο ευαίσθητη φάση του πολέμου με τον κορονοϊό. Ξέρω ότι υπάρχει μεγάλη κούραση. Αλλά υπάρχουν δίπλα μας και νέοι... Greeks will celebrate their second lockdown Easter on May 2nd. But on the following day, the plan is for cafes and restaurants to welcome customers only outdoors and with social distancing. I'm so looking forward to be able to sit somewhere outside in the sunshine and have a coffee, Phoebe. That's like 
my one great ambition over the last year. I'm, I'm, I'm setting the bar really low, but if, if I can manage to do that, I'll be very happy. Another thing that will make you happy is that school children of all ages, all grades, are finally going to return to classrooms on May 10th. I think that's one that uh, all parents in Greece uh, are really looking forward to. Not that we don't love our children, but uh, you know, everyone cooped <laughs> up in in apartments, particularly in, Ath- in in Athens, they're really looking forward to to that one. Let's hope yeah. it all goes smoothly. Well, after that, from May fourteenth, Greece will officially open its doors to tourists. Even though you know some have been spotted in the wild on several islands, including my own, to the extreme annoyance of lockdown Athenians with ancestral village homes. On the surface. This gives the impression things are getting back to normal. But, unfortunately, the current COVID data is discouraging. So I got together with Macropolis co-founder Yanis Mouzakis and our features editor, Yoria Naku, to discuss where we are exactly and how we got here. Yanis, Yorgia, let's start at the beginning. The Greek government was not shy in coming forward about its ability to navigate the first COVID wave last year without too many complications. And that's understandable in the sense that a lot of other countries had great difficulty with this new uh, virus, new pandemic that uh, arrived uh, in uh, Europe. This allowed the tourism sector in Greece to operate over the summer albeit with a severely reduced capacity, and everything looked encouraging going into the autumn. Then things started to go wrong. COVID cases and deaths shot up to rank among the highest in the EU, which was around December, and hospitals were put under great pressure. And of course, we had a new lockdown, which began last November. Yanis, what contributed to this deterioration? Was it incoming tourists over the summer last year? Was it Greeks moving about the country more freely after the lockdown, the first lockdown was uh, came to an end? Uh, Was it schools and shops reopening or a bit of a mixture of all of the above? You've you've blogged about this at uh, uh, our our blog section called also called the Agora on the Macropolis website. So it'd be good to get your thoughts. I think one way to look at it is that uh, judging by the developments and, the, and how the pandemic uh, evolved around the, the, the world since uh, autumn, uh, probably a, a second or a third wave could not have been avoided. Uh, however, what's, what's different in our case is that, um, as you said, like we, we wrote in the blog back in November, is that we had a, a great level of fortune during the first wave because um the, the the connection in the of the country with uh, the, the the travel industry during september uh, sort of during uh, february and march when the outbreak started uh, is a little bit in hibernation in 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 greece uh you know we, we do not have uh, ski holidays taking place uh, we do not have the the 
the, the, the school the school breaks that often lead to winter holidays in the central and western Europe, and no big conferences or uh, sports events that would have attracted travelers in uh, in Greece. So, uh, you know, without getting very much into the numbers, Greece went into lockdown with the rest of Europe with very negligible, really, cases and deaths. And this has allowed us to leave the lockdown in May um, essentially with a little bit of a celebratory mood from the government side. And as you said, it created a sense that, you know, we dealt with the pandemic well. Uh, at the time, the government and the authorities in general relied a lot on scientists and scientific advice to form its policy and their response. So um, immediately plans started taking place about tourism uh, in the summer because tourism is a, is a huge contributor in Greek GDP. It brings in 18 billion euros in revenue. Uh, tourism industry and the associated industries around it are by far the largest employer in, in the country. So th we started seeing a bit of a sense of complacency in the way that we decided to open up the economy and the country to incoming tourism. And although we started seeing from June uh, the first signals that maybe the, the authorities have overestimated the way that the, um, the industry can resume its operations because it, it took a little bit of time to reestablish the uh, air connections. Uh, some of the countries had not completely dealt with their first wave of the pandemic and they it's not, it was not before July that they allowed uh, traveling uh, abroad. Uh, it's evident in the data that we went from essentially being COVID-free. We had something like you know, 10 cases reported a day by the beginning of July. Uh, Those were the days. Yes, yeah. something brought in uh, the virus again. And we, we followed the a strategy at the time because also I think it was um, it had the limitations that we did not have the the volume of uh, rapid tests that we started having from autumn. Uh, we the the government deployed an, an algorithm based on uh, the risk profile of its country and it was selecting a, a percentage of travelers per flight to put through um, tests. And gradually the numbers and, and the cases started creeping up into August. And then let's not forget that August is also the Greeks' summer uh, holiday season. And Greeks left the cities to go to uh, for small breaks into islands or uh, sea resorts. There uh, they mingled with travelers that came from abroad. When the, these travelers went back to their countries, they started testing positive. And there was a, 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 we started establishing links between travel abroad and especially to Greek islands with the spread of the virus. And then if you remember, by the end of August, uh, essentially our touring season came into an abrupt stop because we started putting isle, Greek islands in lockdown because the cases were spiraling out of control there. So this, this, this mixing and the complacency that happened during August then went back into the urban areas because people had to go back to their work. And they went back to their work and they started taking the underground. They started taking public transport. They started going openly to uh, office spaces. And before we realize it, 
uh, starting in the northern part of Greece in the Saloniki area, we had the second wave in uh, in October. The system came under the health system came under pressure, and actually, uh, you know, I was looking at some of the data. Uh, we we were saying at the time that we had 390 ICU cases, and that was putting the system under immense pressure. Now we have around 820, so it's, it's double the amount, just to get a sense of scale. So uh, as much as probably we could not have avoided a, a second and now a third uh, wave, because this seems to be the pattern of the actual pandemic, Everywhere, yeah. some of the decisions that we took running up to the summer last year and the summer itself have contributed to the, the second wave that uh, started in around the second half of September. Okay, that leads us very nicely into the uh, second lockdown, which, as you said, started in November, essentially, and has uh, continued since then, almost uh, uh, unbroken until now. And you would say, looking at things and uh, taking the numbers that you mentioned, that it's patently failed. For starters, we've been in it for six months and uh, that's an indication that something's uh, wrong but more importantly we now have the highest number of intubated patients as we've ever had as you mentioned Jan as well over uh, 800 we've got record daily COVID cases and deaths per day are as high as they've ever been since the pandemic began. Yuria why did the second lockdown fail? Was it a lack of compliance? ineffective restrictions or perhaps was too little done to strengthen the public health system here in Greece? Hi Nick. Well I'm going to be a bit controversial here and say that we don't actually know what went wrong precisely um, in the sense that there's no data out there to tell us what settings people contracted the virus in, how it might have spread and this is a constant gripe of anyone who's trying to follow this story in Greece. You know, you get a lot of um, what I call political epidemiology, where, you know, one set of people, perhaps close to the government, will speculate that it's um, protests and street parties that are the main source of the spread. And then you'll have the other side countering that, oh, well, maybe it's churches because you've allowed church services to continue. Right. None of this is backed up with any kind of data that I've been able to find. But I think um, the conversation you were having with Jan is kind of points to the the major cause, the sort of top level cause, which is probably complacency on everyone's part. Mm. You know, the fact that we had a good run of it in the first wave made the government quite cocky, I would say, um, judging by their own communications and made a lot of people think that for one reason or another you know Greece was safe. Yeah this was very much last summer this was the the feeling going uh, sort of going into the autumn as as well uh, uh, even though the cases were starting to rise then. Absolutely you can then start to sort of look at some of the things that were different in the second lockdown from the first lockdown to try and figure out why things got out of control again apart from the luck factor. You know, there was a reluctance on the part of the government to restrict certain types of activities as they had first time around. 
Um, I think homeworking in the first lockdown was something like 70% legally. Uh, and the second lockdown, I don't think the legal requirement went above 50%. So there were a bit more lax there. Um, you know, there is still a big grey economy in Greece, which means that a lot of labour is undeclared. And we know sort of anecdotally that some businesses were calling workers in when they weren't required or when the business was technically not open. Obviously, you know, you don't know what healthcare measures were being taken there. Yeah, we've all heard stories, yeah. Public transport, we know they promised more frequent services, more buses. And I think the new fleet of buses only arrived a couple of weeks ago. So that's sort of five months with the old fleet with restricted services. So, um, and then, you know, all of these people went back home to their extended families. And we know, the one thing we do know is that there was a lot of household transmission. So all the people going out, meeting a large network of unrelated people outside the home, coming, bringing it back to their families. And I have to say, there was a lack of clear guidance on this. Um, you know, if you focus very closely and you watch the COVID updates religiously on television every week, the experts would say, you know, you have to form small bubbles and you have to restrict the number of people that you see on a regular basis and not see the whole world, uh, you know, in the two hours that you're out of the house. But there wasn't, I don't think this message was absorbed. I don't think it was put out clearly enough. So no, I mean, the result my, my is that people go is... out <laughs> and hang out with people. The, the concept of the bubble didn't really uh, exist, as, as far as I understood it anyway, as far as I could tell from the people around me. No. Okay, so that kind of explains how we got to where we are. Year, year, let's have a look at where exactly we are now in terms of the impact of COVID-19 on public health in Greece. If we look at deaths and infections, which obviously we can measure against other countries, where, where does Greece lie in a European context, at least? Well, when uh, we reopened last summer, that, that happy-go-lucky period we were looking back on, we had about 200 deaths total in a population of about 10 million. We're now up to, we're approaching 10,000 deaths mm. um, at this point. That death rate as a sort of cumulative number puts us roughly on a par with Germany. Right. Um, it's about half the cumulative death toll, relative to population size always, half the death toll of Italy, less than half the death toll of the US. Um, in terms of Total cases, again, sort of Germany is probably the closest comparison in Europe. We, we sort of, we didn't necessarily experience them at the same time as Germany, but that's the sort of total headline number. Again, you know, much fewer than Italy or somewhere like the US. So, you know, you, depending again on who's putting out the numbers and what, what comparisons they're picking, you can make Greece look good or bad, I think the main point is that it could have been better, potentially, given our yeah. starting point. Yeah, and sure. Right now, 
Um, you know, again, our, our closest comparison in Europe is probably Italy or Germany. Um, other countries in Western Europe have sort of crested the wave and have brought things under control more. So the UK has very small numbers compared to us now. Um, and even the US is looking better than us at the stage we're at at the moment. Um, our death toll is at the moment lower on a daily basis than it was in the first wave. Bizarrely, I looked that up and, um, you know, we're, we're doing a bit better on that front now, but we're still a lot worse than Western Europe. We're more sort of, you know, we only look good compared to East or Central Europe at the moment in terms of our death toll. So given all that, the Greek Prime Minister, Kyriakos Mitsotakis, announced a few days ago that after Orthodox Easter on May the 2nd, cafes, bars and restaurants will reopen with outdoor seating, followed by all schools, before Greece officially opens its doors again to tourists on May the 14th. Although visitors from a number of countries are already allowed into the country without having to quarantine if they have been vaccinated or have a negative PCR test. Uh, Yanis, the decision to relax restrictions now seems incongruous with the COVID data, which uh, year just went uh, through there and is, of course, as we said before, worse than when Greece went into the current lockdown in November, which suggests it's driven by other factors. What's the reason for reopening now? Yeah, well, I, I think it primarily is for two reasons. The, the, I would say probably the overarching one is the economic aspect. Uh, the, the economy has been closed for about five, six months now. Uh, the, the government's overall planning from, you know, the, also the, the, the fiscal and the budget perspective has been that, uh, if, if you remember, we would, we would be able even to uh, recoup some of the, Christ, the festive period spending. That's how, that's how the year 2021 was designed. That we're closing for a few weeks in November to catch up for Christmas. So uh, evidently we're in April. And uh, the economy now gradually beginning to, is beginning to reopen. So the, the the main motivation is certainly economic. The economy needs to start, you know, moving again. Uh, also, this is this is linked to the the previous conversation we had about tourism. Uh, you cannot open the tourism sector just with a switch. It needs a few weeks and certain things to be in place before uh, it will be able to open let's say, for the high season towards the second half of June and into July and August. Uh, uh, another issue to consider is that the, the budget has already allocated about $15 billion in, uh, in support measures when the initial estimate was to be around seven. And overall, uh, if, if the situation continues in this path, we will have roughly a similar fiscal performance to last year's. But last year we ran a deficit of more than 10% of GDP. So if, if we're looking into this, into like the, you know, the two year period, we would have run a deficit of 20% of GDP, which is like a huge uh, amount, despite the cash reserves that we have and the quite favorable conditions that we have in the, in the, in the markets and we are allowed to 
issue new debt to finance these support programs and and top, keep replenishing the the cash buffer. But I think there's also a, a, a political consideration. There is the fact that the government realizes that uh, the people had enough being in lockdown mode. Uh, if, if you look at every single opinion poll that's been coming out the last two months, it wasn't like that from the start of the year. But I think over the last six to eight weeks, it's evident that people are not happy with the way that the pandemic has been handled. Uh, and the, the the dissatisfaction towards the government is is increasing consistently. Uh, so I believe the combination of those two factors have have, have led to the decision to to begin to open up from May. Yeah, it's interesting. There, you know, in the early days of the crisis, we saw this kind of rally around the flag effect. Uh, in in many countries, including in Greece, where uh, it's clear that this exogenous crisis was coming in, and uh, people uh, stood by the government and the measures it was taking, and it's been interesting to see the gradual erosion of that to what you're describing now, which is a growing frustration. Even though we all accept, and we we were speaking before we we began this recording. A lot of the restrictions are no longer being uh, adhered to by uh, many people. But nevertheless, there is this growing frustration that we've been in this second lockdown for six months. The numbers are rising instead of coming down. Kids can't go to school. People can't uh, go to some jobs, at least. And the government is bearing the brunt of that. Yeah, but it's it's normal because what people saw last year... Uh, although there was an element of luck and uh, and the, the, the timing worked in that direction, but they saw a decisive action uh, led by science. And six months after the lockdown, we were reporting 10 cases a day. Yeah. So that seemed like a success. And I don't think it just seemed like a success. It was a success. But from that point onward, and now in the situation that's been developing since November, it's understandable that um, this is translating into low levels of uh, satisfaction towards the government overall and also specifically on the pandemic handling. Yeah. In order to relieve this pressure that it's now under and the opinion polls that Yanis uh, mentions in terms of the Greek government, we're seeing the dissatisfaction with the way it's handling the uh, COVID crisis growing substantially. So if we go back to last year, it was there were approval rates of 60-70% for the COVID policy, and now it's almost flipped to, to exactly the opposite, sort of 60% uh, dissatisfaction. In order to get out of this corner that it's in uh, year year, the Greek government's like many others around the world, is investing its hopes in the ever faster pace of the uh, vaccine program to create a shield uh, for Greeks, especially with the, this reopening that we've discussed coming up. The process, uh, and, and I say this from personal experience as well, seems very well organized and it got off to a decent start. But where are we now in terms of the numbers and how does it compare to the rest of Europe? Uh, well, I mean, I think... Anyone who knows me knows I'm not much of a, a Pollyanna. Um, but I have to say that 
Up until quite recently, I think the vaccination rollout was going much better than a lot of people expected. And it was going as well as it possibly could go, given the fundamentals. And the fundamentals Agreed, are, yeah. Yeah. The, the fundamentals are that Greece is part of the EU purchasing scheme. So it gets vaccines delivered proportionate to its population at the same rate as the rest of Europe. Um, and it has been using them up quite efficiently. Um, it's a little bit slower than some countries because it took a decision to deliver the two-dose vaccines um, quite conservatively, quite close together, as opposed to, for instance, countries like the UK that decided to space them out. Um, so, and, and that's particularly, I think, the... The rate at which it kicked off was particularly impressive given what is known about um, the public health care system in Greece, which is that it has a big gap in the primary care sector. There isn't the notion of the family doctor bedded in. There isn't the GP that people belong to. So something had to be put in place pretty quickly in terms of delivering the vaccines, and that seems to have worked so far. So where we stand at the moment is that... About 19% of the population have had their first dose of a vaccine. And that's a little bit behind the European average, which is around 23%. Um, in terms of full vaccination, we're a little bit ahead, again, because of this two-dose strategy. Um, the last time I looked, there was 8.7% of Greeks had been fully vaccinated compared to 8.5% in the rest of Europe. So within that kind of comparison set, you know, we're still looking okay. But having said that, I mean, those numbers are nowhere near any kind of achieving any kind of herd immunity. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're not safe. Um, we're still some way off. What, what, what's, yeah. what's the projection for that in Greece? When do the, the authorities expect that uh, we might reach the magic sort of 70% figure? Um, it's still sort of end of summer along with the rest of Europe. Um, and obviously that means that not only are Greeks, not only does the Greek population have a low level of immunity, but any incoming visitors from Europe will also have a relatively low level of immunity. And even if you look at places like the, you know, other sources of travellers like the UK and the US, they're only at 40 to 50% at the moment. So I think... You know, you can you can look at sort of the numbers in absolute terms and think we're doing great, but actually there's a long way to go before we actually have a wall of immunity built up. Yeah, and quite a sort of tricky summer to navigate uh, in the coming months. And, and then, and then, um, you know, it's probably worth talking about some of the the hitches that are being encountered at the moment, so that the Although things got off to a great start, they are slowing down a bit. Uh, is that the result of uh, the supply of vaccines or something to do with the, the way the programme is running here in Greece? Um, I think it's in terms of the public attitudes. Um, so even in the older age groups that, um, you know, when polled, show a great willingness to get vaccinated. So I think the last numbers I saw were a little bit out of date now, but they said that 8 in 10, you know, of the over 60s 
said they would get it at the first opportunity. Well, they haven't yet. Um, and I don't think that's a question of supply. I think it's a question of demand or willingness. And I think the other thing is that the various hiccups regarding side effects of the vaccines have really rattled a lot of people uh, just across the age spectrum. Um, The doubts about the AstraZeneca have stopped people booking uh, vaccination slots with AstraZeneca. And that has led to a surplus of AstraZeneca. Like, you know, I think we've seen in other countries that um, the government's now trying to sort of divert that to, to other age groups just to get the, the supply absorbed and get more people vaccinated quicker. Yeah, there was that surprise announcement uh, a few days ago from the Prime Minister that the 30 to 39-year-old uh, age group would be able to, uh, in a sense, jump the queue and get in get the AstraZeneca vaccine, the surplus that seems to be there. Uh, Yanis, You've been looking at the vaccination data in a bit more detail recently, and you saw there one or two worrying signs. For instance, there seems to be a low take-up in the most vulnerable age groups, which uh, Yuria hinted at there. What's going on? What can you tell us? Yeah, uh, the data from uh, ECDC that monitors the the vaccination take-up across uh, Europe uh, pretty much backs what um, uh, Yuria said uh, just now. Uh, For the... For the over 80s, the the, the take up is around 65%. Uh, roughly, it's 50% for the 70 to 79 age group and uh, close to 40% for the 60 to 69. Uh, the, the worrying part in this, in this distribution is that the groups over 60 uh, attribute roughly. 70% of the ICU cases, and they are more than 60%, especially the, uh, the age over 80s, half of the deaths. So also if we look at the, you know, the, a bit of the, the distribution of the Greek population, the over 60s are around uh, 2.7 million. So if we do, if we do a little bit of a you know back of the envelope calculation, we have around 1.5 million of people who are mostly at risk of this uh, virus, not having taken a vaccine. And I think for uh, I, I I believe the government has really tied a lot of the progress of the vaccination program to its image. And for me, the the, the key to that is that it should decouple that. You should not see it as, uh, you know, a, a personal failure. Uh, it, I, 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 there needs to be some serious procedural and communication drive to make sure that these people that had the chance and they did not take it, that they will eventually take it. I don't know, for instance, uh, if, if you are a 70-year-old and you have the chance to have an appointment and you didn't book it, is there any follow-up? Do you mm-hmm. get a, 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 a message to remind you? Is there some prioritization for these groups to actually be able to book their appointments at some relatively reasonable time period without going at the at the back of the queue? Uh, all, all this, I mean, I, I don't know all this information, but there should be a, some effort to get these people vaccinated because at the end of the day. These are the people that we want to protect mostly. So by the time 
uh, at the moment there's a big unknown about the, the duration of the vaccine prote- protection. The official data that we have now from the tests is that it's minimum six months. And we think that based on empirical data, that could be up to one year. So the aim is that when we will have to vaccinate people again in about, say, a year's time, we should be ha- yeah. the, 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 the pandemic should be fading away gradually. Uh, for me, there's a risk that come uh, autumn and winter, we will find ourselves potentially again in a bit of an emergency mode because we do not have enough people, the vulnerable or the young ones, or the younger, so to speak, vaccinated. This is my main uh, my main worry. Okay, uh, and it's worth pointing out that those uh, vaccination rates you mentioned are uh, for the older age groups, seventy plus, eighty plus, are substantially lower than in many other European countries. For instance, I was looking somewhere because you could say, well, Greece, there's lots of older people living in villages or islands and so on. But if you look at Ireland, where that could be also the case, the the rate for over 80s is around 95%, something like that. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, we are at the bottom five for most of these categories in terms of take-up. And again, it should not be seen as a re- reflection on the, on the overall program or the efficiency mm-hmm. of the authorities. We have to deal with a situation which the, the data points that is not as satisfactory as we would have liked it. So let's try and do something about it whether it's on the communication front, the procedure front, uh, uh, to address it because it's, it's, a, it's, it's a major challenge as is to reach the, the herd immunity, as you guys said, to reach that 60-70% magic number uh, across the, the EU. Uh, we will have, from what I understand, the next three months, more than 7 million vaccines deliveries. How can we make the most out of it? So by the time we, we, we reach the end of the summer, we're in a much more comfortable position. That sets us up very nicely to conclude the discussion, you know, looking forward, what are the, the big threats or challenges or what are the, the, the potential positives uh, that will uh, come out of this? Yuriya, do you want, do you have something to add to that in terms of the coming months, maybe what we need to look out for, whether it's on the potentially negative side or even the positive side as well? Um, I think it's really hard to know what's going to happen in the next few months. And I think part of the reason for that is to do with, you know, how the tourist season goes. And it's not entirely to do with, with um, you know, what the Greek government does or doesn't do. Um, I think there's been an enormous effort being made at the moment to promote Greece as a destination where people can come and let off steam after being locked up in their own countries. Um, you know, on the surface, it's very attractive, um, but the practicalities are not simple. You know, there's a lot of frivolous talk about things like COVID-free islands. You know, that's that's a ludicrous concept. <laughs> it's not going to work practically. Yeah. As soon as someone lands there, it's not going to be COVID-free anymore. Mm-hmm. Um but um, I think, you know, at the moment, you look at, you know, the, the, communi- the public communications, the sort of the marketing hype, and you look at the reality. And I think a lot of people are looking at the numbers here. 
either individually or at a government level and thinking actually traveling to Greece is not a great idea. So last week, the US State Department put out a list of 100 destinations on the do not travel list, and Greece was one of them. And that was purely based on the numbers. There was no judgment there. It just kicked in automatically. Yeah, it's not to do do about policy or whatever. The US is the third largest source of visitors to Greece. They spent a billion dollars here collectively in 2019. So that's the size of the hit that you will take from those kinds of measures. And that is based on the fact that you have not been able to control the virus domestically. So, you know, you could say on the plus side... People won't come. On the minus side, people won't come. Two sides of the same coin, yeah. Exactly. Um, well, guys, I, we need to wrap it up here. I think that we've um, had a very interesting look back at the last year or so of uh, COVID in, uh, in Greece and identified some of the things that went right, some of the things that went wrong. And with this last part of the discussion, we've set up what uh, could happen in the months again, uh, months to come, or certainly what we need to look out for in the in the coming months. Georgia, Yanis, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Nick. Thank you, Nick. That was a cold shower from Yanis Muzakis and Georgia Naku of Macropolis. You know, Phoebe, it was an interesting exercise tracing the course of this pandemic in Greece since last year. When you take a step back, you can see the mistakes that were made, some of them understandable given we were in uncharted territory with much of this. But there have been slip-ups that perhaps could have been avoided. I guess the most important thing going forward is that we pick up on any problems as early as possible and take corrective action. I think Giannis gave a really great example as far as that goes with the vaccination scheme. There are many positive things to say about it, but it's clear that in some age groups, it's falling short. You need to recognize that and adjust course to make sure you get the desired result. And that's away from the politics of it all. Especially as all our hopes are invested in the vaccines. Because the way the government has set things out is that vaccines plus mass self-testing plus warmer weather equals a gradual end to COVID. That's certainly the plan. Let's hope it works out that way. If it does, there will be no more relieved group in Greece than the doctors and nurses who've been at the forefront of the struggle to keep COVID at bay. They really have made a phenomenal effort in perhaps more difficult circumstances at this point than many of their colleagues around Europe. Because as we know, the Greek public health system wasn't in great shape going into this crisis. You know, it came on the back of a really long economic crisis and years of public spending cuts. One of the effects of that situation, which you described, was a shortage of doctors and nurses. So the medical personnel in Greece has really been stretched since last year. To get an idea of how difficult it's been for them, I spoke to Dr. Mata Tsikrika. She's the first woman elected president of the pulmonologists of Greece, and she works at the Sotiria Hospital, which is one of the main COVID hospitals in Athens. I'm really interested to hear what she has to say. 
you can only have maximum respect for what all frontline workers have been doing, putting so much on the line for the rest of us. I mean, just as an example, she really wanted to talk to us when I called her, but we spent more than a week playing phone tag and twice she had to cancel because she'd just never gone home after her shift ended. It was the next morning and she was still there at the hospital. Well, out of respect for this kind of dedication from all emergency personnel and of course for the lives that have been lost to COVID, we'll conclude this second series of the Agora with the doctor's words. You'll hear again from us in season three, soon. Until then, thank you very much for listening to the Agora from more than 50 countries around the world. We really appreciate your time and interest. Here's Phoebe speaking to Dr. Mata Tsikrika about what life has been like on the COVID front line in Greece. Thank you so much for finding the time to talk with us. I'm, I'm so happy we managed this. You've had such a difficult week. Tell me what it's been like these days at the hospital. Thank you, Phoebe. Thank you so much. I really apologize because I didn't have the time to share with you. Because you realize that working in ICU department now during the pandemic era, actually there is no time at all. You're always next to the patient. You're always on an eye shift. You're always doing something and you're not sleeping, actually. <laughs> How was my week, my last week? Um, I don't know. My last week is actually like the other ones. Because um, uh, now, for a year now, all of us that we're working, I'm actually a chest physician and I'm working in an ICU department in Soteria Hospital, that is a COVID-19 referral hospital, the biggest hospital in Greece for COVID-19. And we are extremely exhausted. And we have been battling for this virus for a year now. And I had to mention that we have to deal with death every day. And of course, as you realize, that can affect us very bad in our psychology. I cried last week. <laughs> I cried last week. <laughs> I won't tell you that. I was so stressed and I missed my family so much. And actually, it was a very hard week because uh, it was, uh, we have a loss. Uh, in a, 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 another colleague actually lost a family member and it was a very difficult for us. You realize that? Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It happens a lot now. We have to cope with very difficult emotional situations, very stressed. I'm so sorry. I I know this is only the most recent challenge, but looking back over the last 12 months, what have been the biggest challenges that, that you've had to face? And this last 12 months... Um... I can I can tell that my very first challenge was for all, not I'm not going to talk only for me I, I think I'm talking uh, uh, for everyone now that the first challenge actually was to beat our fear for the disease it was an unknown disease we didn't know anything about it we had only the 
experience from influenza and from very, very difficult and severe viral pneumonias, actually, because of my specialization in respiratory medicine. Mm -hmm. And all the health workers working in the fourth line, like me, in an emergency department on an ICU department, we were in a very high risk of catching the viral infection. And um, first of all, we had the fear of not having enough quantity and appropriate personal protective equipment during our duty. I've been working for more than a year now in the COVID-19 hospital and still the situation is very difficult. As still now, Greece has the epicenter of the third outbreak. And this wave means seems to be the more vicious. Actually, we have been worried and we've been working in the other two waves of the pandemic, but nowadays things it, things are getting most worse because unfortunately our patients in their in their forties or fifties and they are developing severe symptoms and they, sometimes they have to intubate it. And of course, sometimes we feel very discouraged because these extreme challenges of caring and taking care of 90 patients, we have to cope with emotional task of difficulty in communication, first of all, with the patients and their relatives. And we have to deal with people who suffer. And sometimes it's very difficult because in tough, because they die alone in a hospital issues and settings with other families. This, I think it was very difficult for us to face with. That is so hard and harsh. Are there still shortages now? And, and why is this happening still? After all this yes, time. Yes, yes, yes. No, no, no. This, this is a reality now, actually. The most important shortage is this uh, hosp- is of uh, hospital and ICU beds. At the same time, we have to face with suspicion of non-emergency uh, healthcare services. And on the other hand, all these trapping and social restrictions might have seriously delayed the hospitalization of non-COVID-19 patients and some of them may be in a critical condition. As you realize, we have two things that we have to to manage. First of all, the shortage of the supplies as uh, 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 995 respiratory masks, surgical masks, facials, gowns and clothes. And on the other hand, we have to take care of the other patients that they are not suffering from COVID-19 disease and they have to go on with their treatments, with chemo, with radiation, and if we're talking about uh, lung cancer, and everything must go on. This is the most important shortage, that we don't have a very good organized hospital settings and hospital and, uh, yes, and, and hospital supplies for everyone. It's very difficult. What what do we know now that you wished you had known a year ago? Uh, well, this is let's. I wanna I wanna answer that in a personal base. Actually, uh, what if I, ha- I if I had the wisdom, what I could I had done a year ago, 
And I want that to be an advice to everyone. I would hack a lot, a lot, and be with them, with the loved ones that I really care. I want to give extra, extra hugs. That's very important. I would like to show my parents and the elderly people and the elderly relatives that I have how to use the new technology and Zoom things. I was thinking a lot because I spent hundreds of time with my mother how to use Zooms and um, messages things and all these technology issues. And um, to realize which is the most viable things in life, such as health, hope, happiness, being with family and friends, good sleep that now I don't sleep at all, and of course not money and materials. These are the things actually I want to share with everyone. Wow. How, how many patients are you caring for in the ICU right now? Mm. Yes, uh, we have now 16 beds, ICU beds. And it's very difficult because sometimes young people pass away. It's very difficult. And you have to, to give a priority to whom it will be the one that you, you will give the bed. It's very difficult. It's very difficult. It's very critical. It depends not only from the age, as usually we say it is. depends on a lot of factors. It depends on the medical experience that you have. In pens from the ICU beds that you have, the prognosis of the patient that is more important, and actually it's it's very difficult. I want to share and um, to say something to you is like a, a personal, a very personal thought. The most difficult moment and the most hard moment that I had during all the pandemic area is the time that uh, a new college of us, a respiratory doctor, actually. 40 years old, passed away. And uh, when he was intubated, it was a very difficult. It was a rage, actually, to find the nice to you bed. The, the college, of course, didn't make it. And three children, actually, minors, left behind. Wow. So you realize that there's so many moments that I felt so overhelmed and overworked. And uh, it's very difficult because we have to carry on with our duty and you have to find a way how to relax and to go on. You have to support our senior members. You realize that and actually they support us and sometimes this is the way we help each other. We have to go and find, to adapt very fast and very quickly to some very changing and ongoing circumstances in the job. And so you see all these things every day and outside there's people every that... Day in the, every day, every day, every day, things does not change. The only thing that changes is the age now that we have uh, younger people that they are intubated, actually. The younger people that uh, they believe in fake news, they don't actually want to believe in COVID-19, even they don't care about vaccination and things are getting worse and worse. Are you worried about what will happen in the next couple of weeks, given the circumstances and 
we will open up the economy and and there will be freedom of movement does does that worry you we have to do that we we cannot be closed forever you realize that mm -hmm. but you have to do that with the appropriate precaution measures so we, do, we must not relax. We must not relax in any way the prevention efforts. I realize well we do have epidemic fatigue. This is the correct word, and we can lose some restrictions. And um, we we meet with friends. We have indoor dining, but actually all these things, all these acts that we could do, may contribute to the epidemic and may rise the numbers. Uh, I think that uh, the virus and the vaccine now and the knowledge, the correct knowledge that we have to have on the COVID-19 disease is in a race. And um, we have to realize that even if we don't realize it, the virus will continue to spread despite the pleasant weather, the good weather conditions. If we don't, we, we, uh, if we don't have the face mask, if we don't keep the social distancing, if we don't vaccinate it, of course, of course, we have to go on with our lives. It's very important to have the tourism back. It's very important to interact with each other, but we don't do that with no control at all. Actually, we have to, we have to know to live in new ways. Mm -hmm. Things will get in better. We know that the virus and the pandemic area finally will stop. But all of us, we must be together. We won't want to left behind anyone. We must be there in the new era. Great. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. I thank you. <laughs> I don't know if I really, I, I helped you a lot, but... I want to say that Hippocrates always said that prevention is the very best way to go on. And now we have to realize that, that this is the only motto in our life. No one actually wants to, uh, to have COVID-19. Even us that we're working all the time and now we're working 24 hours in the shift with these guns. We don't want to, but things happen. That's it. We have to realize that the nature change and climate change, they are coming. And things are not as we knew. Everything will change now. And that's why we have to change too. And to realize that we are part of the nature and things are getting and getting always better. But we have to help in that direction too. Perfect. Thank you so much. Thank you, Vivi. Thank you. Thank you.